Welcome to Authorized, Tertiary Tomes, a sub-podcast within Authorized, where we discuss books that are not novelizations, but similarly owe their existence to a film. Tertiary Tomes are sequels to procedural treasure hunts that embrace all of the lore that came from those previous stories, while totally jettisoning the... Ah, while totally jettisoning the clue-solving structure that previously characterized the series. Instead, these books embrace the other side of the Walt Disney Corporation, the big, silly action-adventure that functions as one ever-changing, ever-evolving chase scene. Trading intrigue for thrills and intellect for adrenaline, tertiary tomes tacitly admit that their preceding books either weren't successful or... Utterly wrung, yeah, or utterly wrung dry their conceit to the point that radical new leaves must be turned over. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of Roanoke Colony Truthers. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. National Treasure, colon, uncharted, parentheses, a, gate fa- a Gates family mystery, close parentheses. Oh, is you're not just... used to saying that by now? I'm not, and I probably never will be. <laughs> These cumbersome titles. <laughs> well, anyway, they sure are historical fiction adventure novels written by Katherine Hapka. This one follows Adam and Ellie Gates, intrepid twins in 1810, who are hungry to explore the young, expanding nation that is the United States, one more than the other. Mm. Mm-hmm. When the mm. twins hear that Lewis and Clark are set to chronicle the spoils of the Louisiana Purchase, they form separate but fervent motivations to join the expedition, sort of. Ellie desires to put her myriad of skills to use in the wild and also like see the world and be a human being who has adventures, while Adam mm-hmm. believes the unknown land may contain his family's white whale, the treasure of the lost settlers of the Roanoke colony. And also like he's just along for the ride. With little plan and many rivals in their quest for treasure, will the twins find that ancient treasure or be lost for good in the thick tangle of the American Midwest, becoming a new lost colony with a population of two? Cute. Cute, Andrew. Cute one. Thank you. Thank you. National Treasure, colon, Uncharted, is the third of four Gates family mystery books, each of which focuses on a different cast of characters in a different era with a little overlap. It was published by Disney Enterprises in 2008. Our guests today, there are two of them, and I will introduce them separately. First off, returning from our National Treasure Book of Secrets episode, and I'm beating Hannah to the punch. There is a novelization. I didn't know it existed. We didn't cover it, but we will someday. She was going to say it. (laughs) Screw up one time. A costume technician based in Los Angeles, Annie Ulrich. How are you doing today? Doing great. Ready to talk about National Treasure again. Yeah, it's nice to be back in the uh, to be back in the saddle uh, even though I mean we'll get into our thoughts on this once we introduce our other guest, but uh, Annie, do you feel like this captures the feeling that you get from a National Treasure movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a hard no for me, Andrew. It, it it sounds like a really leading question, but I think there are arguments on both sides of this. I, I think that you could be like, well, you know, I really come to it for the treasure hunting. Um, but I agree with you. The the entire feel of these stories is good. This one but in particular. Very, I mean, I'm different. I like this makes me want to read the other ones because I I wanna rank them and like how how close did they come? 
to that initial sweet, sweet treasure hunting excitement. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say that any of them feel like they could be a National Treasure movie. And and what I'll say about that now is, is just the sense of humor, sort of the, the sensibility of the films is just not captured in the books. Even you though they can be exciting. No, we're I, I'm not closer. yet westward bound. I think bound. we're getting closer to the tone of National Treasure. <laughs> I think the most fun thing about this series is that it was cut short and <laughs> the ending won't be satisfying. Our second guest, someone that hasn't been on before, someone, I mean, and this is very normal for the podcast, someone I don't know, but I'm very, like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. To our second guest, there is only one thing that I know about you, and it is that you love National Treasure. Yes, that is true. I do love National Treasure. A local playwright as well as... Wait, you Local said to thing. you. <laughs> yeah, we're local. Yeah, we we're representing about? a lot of the country <laughs> okay. right now. Here's the thing. I'm a math tutor. Our second guest is local to me. He is also local to himself. And we round point five up to one. It is true. 50% of this uh, podcast is based in Chicago right now. In this, I'm also moment. not even sure that's true. I mean, he's nodding, so I think it's true. <laughs> this is true, yes. I am local to Chicago. <laughs> and I'm just taking a stab at the name pronunciation, just off the dome. Chase Wheaton Whirl. That is how most substitution teachers pronounce it. And so Fuck! Wheaton Whirly. Chasse. Chasse. <laughs> I have substitute teacher energy. What can I say? <laughs> Chase what is your relationship to the National Treasure movies? What age did you see them at? And uh, what's your what's your feeling about the franchise at large, the new television series that isn't out yet? Just, just give it all to us. Yeah, uh, I first started watching uh, National Treasure when I was a little kid. Um, and I was um, like really taken with the idea of an Indiana Jones style adventure, but not in a, you know, not somewhere exotic like in Peru or in India or in Egypt, mm -hmm. but right here in America. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, I'm a sucker for any kind of treasure hunting story with puzzles and clues and a race against a villain. I love that kind of stuff. And then I got a little bit older when I thought it was cool to dislike things uh, that I enjoyed when I was younger. And then I was like, National Treasure, what a stupid idea. Thing on the back that the Declaration of Independence, what a dumb movie. And then I kind of followed the cultural swing back around to really loving it. And I watched it again um, not too long ago. Um, and I really kind of came around when I started picking it apart and going like, you know, there's there's a lot of like really fun details in here. And it's overall just a really enjoyable ride. The clue finding in these movies uh the way that he'll just off the dome be like declaration aeration rocks breathe like it really scratches for me this this um instinct i had as a kid where you're like it would be cool if i was smart enough to figure that stuff out right oh yeah one of just my like, one of my favorite scenes in both movies is seeing nick cage kind of free associate ideas that he has and connections about things and like especially when you're like no 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 that's a 
dumb idea. No, no. Um, <laughs> and why an iron pen? They had iron galling, so that'd be redundant. Uh, no, it's got to be something else. Like I love seeing his thought process, especially when it gets a little bit more uh, uh, far-reaching. It's uh, the really fun. Something that we can possibly brainstorm all episode that I just want to bring up here in our original National Treasure Book of Secrets episode. Uh, we discussed how the two movies have this. Uh, they each have this hook. They each have this unofficial tagline. Uh, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence, and then I'm going to kidnap the President of the United States, which is something that almost no other movie has going for it. This sort of like, I'm going to subvert America uh, tagline. And... and I, I think I put us put this to us last time, but I cannot come up with many others. Like, were there to be more? I think the one I had last time was I'm going to marry the Statue of Liberty. So if we can all just brainstorm possible taglines for future movies, I'd love to hear them at any point. I happen to have one. Um, I uh, uh, Part of the reason that I love National Treasure and, and stuff like all this and, and why I'm really excited to be on this uh, particular episode is because I am, one of my projects is I'm working on a, writing a third National Treasure. And oh. that big like statement of intention, like I'm going to blank was something that I <laughs> wanted to make sure I included. And so the, 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 the history in the particular story that I'm wanting to write takes place during the War of 1812. And so the statement of intention that I'm wanting him to say is, I'm going to burn down the White House. But <laughs> but I got to hedge that a little bit because it's not like literally burning it down. But what he wants to do is set off like a fire alarm to evacuate everyone in the White House so that he can investigate one of the uh, additions of the White House that was built up after it was burned down in 1812 to find an artifact that was stored there in his treasure hunt. Wow. That really, I mean, th that fits perfectly, but it also casts uh, these into a light where I realize that he is just making treasonous statements. <laughs> yeah, kind that's of, part of the deal. <laughs> a lot of crimes committed in the National Treasure mm -hmm. franchise. What, what I really like about his uh, statement in the second movie where I'm going to kidnap the president is that it kind of ties in thematically with the John Wilkes Booth um, uh, plot because the original plot for John Wilkes Booth was not to assassinate the president, but to kidnap him instead. And so there's a fun mm. like parallelism to his like statements and the 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 piece of history that the stories uh, surround. I love the idea that someone would be watching Book of Secrets, a movie where, of course, the Gates family name is uh, cast into a lot of doubt, and they would just buy into it. Oh, he wants to kidnap the president because he is the descendant of that guy that helped Booth. <laughs> Chase, what is your, and I, I mean, uh, question open to everybody. What's the initial impression of Uncharted, the third book in this series, you know, it, presumably the first one you've read, uh, just coming into it cold? How's, how's it feel to, to crack this thing open? Uh, for me, um, it took a, a little bit for me to warm up to it because it takes a while for the actual 
clues and riddles and ciphers to come into play, which for me is a, such an integral part of the uh, of the national treasure experience. Um, and I did happen to read the previous one, Midnight Ride, and oh. with that one, there's like a clue, a riddle every ten pages. It's like the whole thing is going from one scavenger hunt point to the next. And mm. with this one, there's like maybe two. Um, but towards the end... I thought it was generous you said clues with an S at the end. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I guess there, it's really hard to argue that there's like more than one. But towards the end, there were some fun little lore Easter eggs in this book that tie into the two movies that weren't really very present in Midnight Ride. Mm. That kind what do you mean by that? So, um, of course, they talk about the, the treasure of the ancients. Um, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, in his uh, missive to, um, uh, 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 to Meriwether Lewis, mentions CC of C, which was revealed to be uh, Charles Carroll, which was the signer of the Declaration of Independence that passed on his clue to Thomas Gate at the beginning of uh, the first national treasure. And um, mm. there's also the mention of the City of Gold um, uh, in here as well. And... Uh, in, in Midnight Ride, it felt very much like a, a self-contained adventure uh, without a lot of lore connections to the actual events of the two movies. Um, it was just like a, its own kind of treasure hunt that you could kind of take out of context. But this book, uh, there were some really fun nuggets that people who are kind of familiar with the movies are like, oh, they're talking about this. That's, that was what happened in the movie, like what I saw. Um, so towards the end, there was a bit more of that than in the first book that I kind of enjoyed. Wait, I have a stupid question. Is, is, is the treasure of Roanoke is not one of the treasures uncovered in the films, right? No, no, uh, not at no. all. No. Cause we it's are that... meant to believe that they find that treasure in this book. Yeah. Even though so. the hows, the whys, and the wheres just are, are not explained, answered, or resolved. <laughs> they, yes. they themselves, the characters, even kind of leave the adventure at the end going like, how did they get there? What happened after that? Uh, who are the <laughs> it feels like there was something more to be discovered, but we're not going to. So, <laughs> end of book. <laughs> the end of this book has a real energy of like... Uh, we don't really know how this happened, and the treasure was okay. We're not thrilled with it. It was nice to take a hike. <laughs> the real treasure Truly. was the friends we made along the way, and we don't need to ask <laughs> we any have more a questions new about it. Yeah, <laughs> they almost exclusively make enemies. Now, before <laughs> before we get into that, because uh, Annie, you uh, have not read the first two books. Chase, you have not read the first book. Let's just do a little recap. Because I, I was dismayed to find that this third book that we were having new guests on for was far more serialized than the first two. Um, Hannah, yeah. can I pass to you just sort of a, a summation of the events of National Treasure Changing Tides? Yes. So the year is 1600-something or other. Maybe it's 1612. It doesn't matter. It's early 1600s. Samuel mm -hmm. Thomas Gates is a boy in England whose dad is really into treasure hunting to the point that it ruins their family financially <laughs> in order to... He gets like made off, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, in order to fix the family name and also have some type of future, Sam and his brother William go to Jamestown, American colony. Um 
where they get wrapped up in a treasure hunt about what they believe is real treasure. They meet a nice girl and her less nice brother, and they all have adventures together. They interact with the local Indian population and learn a bit about how hard it is to be a colonist in the early days of the American settlement. In the end, they do find a treasure after following legitimate clues. Many. Many clues. Actual clues. Clues that lead to other clues. Our, Our feedback on this first book was really like, there are too many clues and they are confusing. Yes, the, the <laughs> definitely for sure the clues in the first book are confusing as a reader. They're very hard for you to solve along with the mystery. They stole the clues from National Treasure Uncharted. <laughs> but there's <laughs> so many no more clues. of them, Annie. There's Left like... no clues for Uncharted. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Catherine Hopka was like, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've done it. Two is enough. <laughs> but in the end, they do find a treasure. It turns out that the treasure is actually just like Native American heirlooms. And Sam and his friends are like, well, that's nothing to us. But it was nice to have the adventure. Oh, and then an old lady gives him the medallion featured in Uncharted. Mm-hmm. And says, and we think it leads to a treasure. This is not important at all, but the villain in the first book is an adult man who keeps trying to murder a child, yes. the main character. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 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 quite twisted. The second book, Midnight Ride, I mean, I don't have the year on hand, but I mean, what, like a hundred years have yeah, passed? Yeah, it's like 1773, I think. Yeah. Things are about to get a little revolutionary. So... <laughs> Essentially, whatever the name of that Gates kid is. Uh, John Raleigh ahead. Gates. John. John Raleigh Gates. <laughs> he uh, is 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 the guy I was talking about from the second book who's like, I would never treasure hunt. However, I, I have my own beliefs. He gets radicalized into uh, doing the tea party. That's the beginning of the book. He uh, essentially... Uh, becomes friends with like Paul Revere and that cadre of people and he's a postal worker so at one point they're like take this very important message uh, to a guy about possible revolution and he gets to the guy and he finds that the guy has been murdered by the regulars the British uh, soldiers and uh, sort of has to take up the mantle of solving this treasure hunt that that guy would have gone on which is a hunt in which a bunch of guys from Yale who and this is my head cannon a bunch of guys from Yale who got really loaded one night and were like we should hide a bunch of guns uh did that and then there's a bunch of clues as to where to find this uh this cache of 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 ammunition and he follows a bunch of clues that were m- more followable than the first book. Good clues although, in book two, in my opinion. I can't really remember them, I will say. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of like riddles lot- and like word mm-hmm. clues. Um, and also the book does a funny thing where they're like, hey, remember that clue we found at the end of the last chapter? Well, at the beginning of this chapter, we've already solved it. Don't worry about it, <laughs> which is fun. <laughs> they do that, but then they also do things where they're like, uh, we uncovered a clue. I wonder what it means. I spent a year thinking about it. So much time passes between clues. It's yeah. like yes. the the my my main thing with like this series is that the pace is very different from your National Treasure film, where it's like the the movies is like we got to go now, like go go go. But this one is like oh, we'll think about it, and then a month passes. Like hey, I got an idea about that clue. 
<laughs> well, have you, uh, Chase, have you ever read a, a movie novelization the, based on the screenplay? I don't think I have. Not for a long time, actually. So that's the bread and butter of our podcast. That's what we're usually doing. And if you have seen a movie and then you go read the novelization, like a movie will start with an action sequence. And you're like, whoa, this is going to be a great time. <laughs> you crack open the book. There's like 60 pages of who these people are and what they're doing. And then they get into an action sequence. There's just something about this form the you know, the form of like the relationship between literature and film where when you literature a film, shit just slows down. It would be fun to read one of these, Hannah, where... Uh, it was a 300-page book, and it was all just turned up to 11. <laughs> that would be really fun. It would. Uh, I mean, so anyway. I'm, I'm willing to forgive some of it in these books, because it's like, okay, legitimately, it did take a month to get from Boston to Philadelphia back in the day. But I do think that Changing Tides <laughs> takes place probably over about a two-month period. It's pretty compressed. Mm. Mm-hmm, the first Midnight one. Ride literally takes a year and a half. Yeah. Like, no exaggeration, yeah, 18 months. And then I'm yeah, sure I didn't I meant, like, I meant to add it half. up. I didn't actually, though. Yeah, it's... And, like, for almost all of it, their parents have gotten no mail from them saying where They're the hell they are. Parents. Oh, my God. It's heinous. <laughs> mm. So the, the main thing about Uncharted, having read these previous books, is it's a complete break from form. Hannah... What's your yeah. impression, having read all three? How'd you feel about this one? Well, there's no fucking clues in this thing. To be straight with you, I mean, that's very clearly a huge difference. There's no clues whatsoever. They, they keep bringing up the medallion, and then following the medallion is not like, the medallion led us to a clue that led us to a different clue that led us to a visual puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's just like we followed the symbol for months. Okay, not exciting. The other clue they have is a letter from Thomas Jefferson, which they just don't solve for most of the book. Then they solve it. They get a second piece and they're like, huh, well, that's interesting, but I don't know what that means. And then they don't even deliver it to the person who might know what it means. They're just like, whoops, we forgot. Oh, well. So that's frustrating. (laughs) Personally. There's even a part in this book because the the letter is stolen from Lewis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from a messenger who's going to deliver it to Lewis, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, it, it it was meant for Lewis, and, and there's even a part where they're like, oh, the bad guys had a chance to give it back to him, but they didn't, which is how we know they're bad. And then they don't <laughs> give it back to him. And Lewis doesn't even know it exists either, so it's not like no. he's like, oh, no, my letter. I mean, uh, no, there's no clues. There's no treasure hunting. There's like a decent amount of adventure. I would say, but it's not really the, you know, in like Book of Secrets where they're like, oh, our treasure hunt has led us to a series of insane puzzles we have to physically solve. If this book was a lot of insane puzzles inside of caves or whatever, I would forgive it not having a bunch of clues to follow. But it also doesn't have that. The the movies have, I think, the element that this book uh, peddles, which is the movies are like, the bad guys are chasing us and we're running. How scary. We better get to that clue before them. And the first two books very much are like, let's do the clues. Clues are fun. And the third book is a whole book of the bad guys are chasing us. Ah. But also they go for like really long periods where they don't see the bad guys. And it sort of seems like they're gone forever. I actually, I spent, I can tell you exactly because I finish it and like i have to know the breakdown 
Chapter 13 is when <laughs> I would say we can officially say we are on a treasure hunt now. Everything <laughs> before that is just them being like, yeah, we're in we're in Philadelphia. Oh, let's help out this kid. Okay, let's run away from these bad guys. Okay, we're back home. Well, let's go back to Philadelphia. Oh, no, it's those bad guys again. Oh, I have to get my sister back. It, it's just like one thing leading to another, but like not in a quest way, just in like a pure responding to problems way. And then they don't even decide to be on the adventure until chapter 13, <laughs> which is literally 72, 72% of the book has elapsed yeah. at this point. <laughs> so much of it is like a treasureless adventure. Yeah, and our main character Adam, our main guy, Hannah. keeps spend spends most of the book being like, "Let's just go home." I, no, yeah. I, I don't want to do it. Let's go home. I'm not interested in this. Um, right, it which make is for, like, so strange. He's the one that's supposed to like hunting. Yeah, he's also like a lackadaisical, like lazy boy, basically, which is a fun character trait. Um, but man, yeah, it's it's not. Um, it doesn't have the thrill of the chase. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like, and and I think we should go through the plot of this uh, for the listener, but doesn't doesn't it feel like, Hannah, that the author got some sort of feedback here about the first two books? Must have. <laughs> Must have. Way too many clues. Get those clues out of there. Because we, we were both. saying in the first book, like, there are too many clues. They're visual. She's writing out visual clues. That's not fun as a reader. I can't see the tree. I can't see what the tree looks like in the moonlight. Like, that's not fun for me. Mm -hmm. Second book, she kind of hits her stride. She's like, these are text clues. You, you're you reading text. Have at it. And then in this one, she's like, this entire series was a mistake. It is a shame. Um, I like the clues in the second book, and I was excited to see how she would do that while on an adventure in essentially uncolonized territory, right? They're just like in the mm -hmm. woods with bears and shit. And I was like, how exciting <laughs> it will be. Or like, I really did think that this third book would be there with Lewis and Clark most of the time. That's mm. what I thought too. And, and they are never with Lewis and Clark. No, that's the whole point. They never make it to the, to the actual uh, uh, expedition that they were trying to make in the first place. And like, if I were to try to defend uh, Catherine Hapka here, I would say, well, the benefit of the first two is that they are in cities. So you've got like, oh, the history of like architecture, man-made things that are already there. And it can be kind of hard to interpret like, what kind of clues are they going to find in the wilderness? Uh, is there like a clue that leads to a tree or a rock mm. or something? So like, I can see if, you know, if this is the setting that she chose to write it and how that might be a challenge for her to, mm. you know, put in this treasure hunting, clue chasing uh, uh, narrative like structure. But even so, I mean, that's, uh, I would say maybe choose a different one. Let's talk about the plot of this book. The first thing that jumps out to me, having read two before this, each of these has a prologue. And usually in the prologue, something happens that doesn't accelerate or it doesn't kick off the adventure plot, but it's like a big character moment. This one is like a nothing. In the it's first book, aggressively nothing. <laughs> in the first book, the guy comes home and his dad has gotten uh, Bernie Madoff and and has disgraced the family. In the second book, the the dude does the Boston Tea Party. Anyone want to take what happens in this prologue? I mean, I, literally all the 
The only thing that really feels relevant to the rest of the book is that they meet the Brewsters. Which uh -huh. feels like a... Oh, maybe we've made enemies and that's gonna... I, I thought it was gonna be something like them saving the kid, foiled some plan, that, you know, wheels start turning as a result of that, but it's literally just like, we met a character who's gonna be relevant later, and we met our villains. And then a separate sequence of events is going to kick off the rest of the plot in the book. This is just like a little teaser of who these people are. Yeah, and there's a there's a brief mention at like a family dinner talking about the the actual Louisiana purchase, which I think is meant to be kind of like, ah, all this land is opened up and we've got all these places to explore, which is going to lean into like the actual exploration of that place. But no no actual inciting event or character moment. It's more like kind of building the world itself. We also hilariously have like the most and the only book time for the aunt and the cousin of the Philadelphia family who we never see again. <laughs> they just refer to them. As like annoying people they don't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a part that feels indebted to the previous book where, or uh, indebted is a bad word, tethered or shackled <laughs> it, this previous book is like here's a boston family they live in concord and they get you know tangled up with paul revere and then this one only takes place 30 years later and hapka's like god damn it they're in concord what do i do i guess they're visiting philly a lot they go more than once <laughs> Yeah, and like they could move. These aren't real people. They could move. Yeah, and there's a, there's another mention of like the Sims neighbor, which is another oh like character God. from the from the second one. Was there a Sims character in the first one, or is this just no, from the second? Just from the second one. <laughs> so a little cameo that is you know here and gone and never mentioned again. Really weird. A and the, he, you know the, the Sims reader. thing. Say that again, Hannah? I'm saying it's a little nugget for the constant reader. You keep reading them, you get more little pieces of like, oh, I recognize that from the previous book. We love it. The Sims thing, though, feels like, uh, so for Annie's benefit, in the second book, there's this family, and they th th this guy Sims really wanted to marry his daughter, or I'm sorry, marry his son off to uh, the the aunt in this book, who's married to Duncan, and she wasn't into it, and so Sims like hates them, and he accuses them of treason. He does all this, all this stuff. Uh, but he's not a huge part of the book, and so when they nod to him in this one, it's it literally comes down to let me let me pull the passage up. It's on thirty six. Um, it's so small. It's just. Uh, <clears throat> As Adam opened his mouth to respond, the clatter of hooves came from the entrance to the yard. Looking up, he saw a neighbor named Sims riding in with a bundle of leather tied behind his saddle. Gates, Sims spat out in his typical disagreeable way. I need this lot back within the week. See to it, boy. He loosened a string, allowing the massive harness pieces to fall to the dusty ground with a thump. Yes, sir, Adam muttered as the neighbor spun his horse and rode off at a trot the animal's hooves kicking up more dust. That's it. And it, it it feels like he's barely in the second book. He's barely in the third book. They just have him pop up to be like, this guy's kind of a dick. Uh, he's He feels like the, um, what's his name character from Paddington that just shows up for one minute in every movie. Oh, their movie mean neighbor? Like, 
I suck. Don't forget I suck. So in the uh, prologue, we get the intro to the Brewsters where uh, I believe it's Ellie speaking, and she says, you're not thinking of those treasure hunters, the Brewster brothers, are you, Adam? Her clear blue eyes, a mirror image of Adam's own, registered suspicion. You know father warned you against seeking them out. We never hear why. Maybe he's heard that they are of ill repute. Because as we find, the Brewster brothers have all the same motivations as our protagonists, but they just stoop to horrible acts. They they got onto their treasure hunt because they stole a letter meant for Lewis about how, hey, you know, while you're checking out the Louisiana Purchase, by the way, we think there's some Roanoke treasure out there. They are real Sean Beans and National Treasure 1, to the point mm-hmm. where they should have the same last name as him, and they don't. And also, uh, these characters had better come back in book four. Like, we better have more, like, Brewster antagonists to, like, pay off some of this shit, in my opinion. And maybe they were planned in books five and six, and we'll simply never know. But that feels important to me. Yeah, definitely. It definitely feels like she's getting into a mode where she's laying track, Hapka. Because we're starting to see serialization in this book. And then the next one, timeline-wise, comes so quickly on the heels of this one. Which makes sense, because if she's getting into you know, the 1900s, uh, eventually, she has to speed up if she's thinking I'm going to make 15 of these books that are all prequels, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a fun detail in here that I like um, where the, the Gates family business is essentially like working in stables and working with horses. And when I saw that this was a series of books over periods of time, I was going in expecting to be like, okay, and this Gates works with like horses, but the next Gates, oh, he works in cartography or like this Gates is now a silversmith. But it makes sense that in, in such a short period of time that uh, they wouldn't like change to a completely different profession. They're still working with horses and in stables. And it also tracks even further to the movie where Thomas Gates knows Charles Carroll because he's his stable boy. So mm. that, that family business of working with horses feels like it it makes sense in in the lore of the Gates family lineage. And it tracks why all your Gates protagonists are like beefcake hunks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Nicholas Cage is like a well-built guy. Um, but as like an academic, you're like, yeah, but he's like fit and shit. And I think it's nice that his whole family is like, yeah, we're mostly jocks. We just happen to do treasure hunting. <laughs> it tracks, it makes sense, it's continual. Good They've got access to horses so they can travel between like states at ease. Yeah. The sort of inciting incident of this book is that the Lewis and Clark expedition is going to happen. And they're very up on the, the activities of Lewis. So we get in the prologue, uh, this from Ellie. Uh, do you listen to nothing I say, Adam? I'm talking of Meriwether Lewis, the officer President Jefferson has named to head his expedition to explore the uncharted land beyond the Mississippi River. The president has sent Captain Lewis here to Philadelphia to study all the sciences with the great minds of today to help prepare him for the grand adventure. Oh, of course. Now that she mentioned it, Adam did recall her saying such a thing several times during the journey down from Concord. Shooting a sly look in Robert's direction, Adam added... 
Uh, oh, and then they do their talking. I forgot about the talking. Oh, the thing. backwards talking. I forgot about the, the talking. Thing. Oh yeah, the, essentially the weird coded speak they do. Mm-hmm. They they have this coded speak in the book where they're twins. They, so don't forget what's that? Well, they're twins, so they speak a secret twin language. Exactly, and the the idea is that they essentially switch the uh, syllables of words so that they're. I believe. Are they saying the syllables backwards, or are they switching yeah. the order of them? Yeah, so it would be, uh, instead of Andrew, you'd say, Drew, uh. Mm-hmm. No, my N word. Or Drew, yeah, Drew, and. Drew, Drew, Ann. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem that hard to understand. Yeah, to- like, every time I was saying it out loud when reading it, I was like, I think I would get this. <laughs> like- I think it, it seems like it's more of a, if you're speaking it at normal speed, it's harder to follow so people are less likely to mm-hmm. catch yeah. exactly what you're talking about. And they're so practiced mm. at it that for them it's like normal speak and everyone's like this is gibberish. It sounds like gibberish to me. Yeah, you would have to assume because like the, the mental brain power of like seeing the word in your head, switching those syllables around and then saying them out loud and then the other person hearing that going like okay, how did they switch around those syllables? Oh, that must mean this word is like a lot. That Gates family, they're In real smart. time. <laughs> they're bright. I guess eventually you nerdy horsemen you've heard before. I don't know. Yeah, there's something right. yeah. yeah. When you hear Thurbro so many times, it's like, okay, brother. Or <laughs> or Lee L. It's like, okay, that's Ellie. Sure, yeah. Like, when you start to repeat words, you're like, okay, that, that, I, I recognize that word. So what would I do with, let's just stop down for a second here. How would I say <laughs> National Treasure Uncharted? Oh, God. Because <laughs> there's three syllables. I have to I have to write it down. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah I think it would be like, Shinalna Shirtre Chartedun. That's... Or Arted Unch. <laughs> arted Unch is really funny. I like Arted Unch. Wait. So you have to break down a word into essentially a binary, right? Because yeah. it sounded like with Uncharted, we still treated it like it was two things instead of three. Yeah, you have, it's, you're switching two. Or a simple flip-flop, not a, like, full-on juggle rearrange. I think there's a reason that most of the words which uh, Hapka chose to like subvert were two-syllable words. Yes, totally. <laughs> that I think this both demonstrates their intelligence and is deeply stupid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Because there's moments in the book where they're speaking their pig Latin and then they just say single-syllable words. And it's like, well, the villain does know you just said thank. So <laughs> right. there's that. It's not a perfect code. <laughs> <laughs> I like my idea. You should just reverse the syllable of every word. That would make everything hard to understand, right? So, like, every syllable should be said backwards. That would be Uncharted, harder. I guess, being like Natark Debt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Well, you Those work on fast. that and you come back to us. <laughs> hey, I'm pretty good at this, it seems. <laughs> okay, we eventually get like the actual inciting incident of this story which is that on 27 uh from thomas uh speaking of the expedition i heard an interesting rumor recently thomas spoke up again he paused as a cough racked his body 
a secret reason for President Jefferson to send Lewis, in particular, into the West. And this latest news makes it all the easier to believe. What is the reason, Grandfather? Adam asked, recognizing the gleam in the old man's eye, which usually meant they were in for an interesting tale, if not always a credible one. Thomas laid one finger beside his nose and smiled. I was like, is he going to do cocaine? I hear the president might be sending Lewis and his party to recover the treasure of the ancients. Oh, father, John scoffed with a chuckle, but Adam's heart start, started beating faster. The treasure of the ancients? He'd grown up on tales of that mystical collection of riches. It was said to date from the time of the pharaohs or earlier, a treasure that had been fought over for centuries, growing larger throughout time to unimaginable levels of wealth. This book has to do a lot. I mean, it's a cool idea that there's this historical expedition. And we've talked about this in, I, I think, our Changing Tides episode, but one of the challenges of this type of historical fiction is you're trying to put heart-pounding treasure hunting within the confines of known history, which means you can't do things that are too ridiculous. You can't go, hey, there actually was a woman on Lewis and Clark's expedition. People will just go, no, there was not. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's a fun thing to go, okay, this expedition that we all know that happened, what if there was a secret motivation behind it? And because it's treasure, maybe they actually found it because they wouldn't report that. Like, we may still not know it. But they have to do a lot of legwork to explain why the treasure of Roanoke is within the confines of the Louisiana Purchase. One, yes, they absolutely do. <clears throat> Two... It feels like what this book is purporting is that Jefferson says there's a separate treasure, right? And it's what we know is the treasure from Book of Secrets that's underneath Mount Rushmore, right? Mm. Go look for that. I There's clues. Here's a, here's a starter clue. Which, mm -hmm. like, how did he find out about it? How does he know where it was? Well, the treasure of the ancients, as I was led to understand, is the, the Templar treasure from the first movie. Oh, man. Because the way he's describing the treasure like accumulating over the centuries, in the flashback from the first movie, we see starting with the pharaohs and then gathering throughout time and then collected by the Templars, traveled to America where they hid it somewhere. So anytime they talk about the treasure of the ancients, I'm led to believe it's that treasure specifically. That makes way more sense for why, uh, what's his name? The other founding father. Uh, Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll would be involved. Because that was, I was legitimately thinking like, wait, so Charles Carroll had his hands in the first treasure and the second treasure? How? Right. But yes. that makes way, that makes way more sense. Yes. <laughs> I do. That's... Now I'm starting to feel like I should have rewatched both movies in between reading each book. <laughs> and also done a rundown of who is who and what every single name yeah. when it has come up and what it's meant and what I, treasure is what treasure because like we got to the end of uncharted and like i think sacagawea is like oh those are the six grandfathers and i was like oh that's mount rushmore i know that um because i'm a smarty pants uh and i was like right then only now was like, oh, and that's the treasure from the second movie. So this family's never going to find it for another <laughs> 200 years. Right. Yes. Gates. Yes. Wait, wait, hold on. So the treasure from the letter 
to Lewis is the treasure from Book of Secrets. No. No. The, the, the letter, the missive which uh, Jefferson meant to send to Lewis uh, contains a clue referring to Charles Carroll, who had the first clue, which leads to the treasure hunt for the Templar treasure or which the treasure of the Phil- ancient. Philadelphia. So what, so First are we treasure. to believe that Thomas Jefferson wanted him to receive this letter before he left Philadelphia so that he could use that treasure to fund the expedition and that's the end? I don't think it was meant to fund the expedition. Now, I've, I'm very, <laughs> this was one thing I did have questions about actually, like the, the motivation for Jefferson to send this clue to Meriwether Lewis. Um, because if Jefferson knew about the treasure as a one of the masons like he wrote the declaration of independence i think it would be difficult for knowledge of this treasure that they wrote a map on the back of the document which he penned to escape his knowledge um what purpose would he have to send a clue to meriwether lewis uh, why would he want him to find that um it, did he want him to keep the secret rather than like actually look for it that's never really gone into but like following the thread back to its uh, initiation point really doesn't uh, kind of muddy is like, what is the purpose of this actual inciting incident here? I wish there was a scene where they meet Meriwether Lewis and he's like, oh, thank you for delivering the letter. Let me explain to you what it means. And then we'd all be like, oh, cool. That's what you were supposed to do. And that doesn't happen. They also don't like bump into Thomas Jefferson ever, who's like, ah, you found my clue. You solved my riddle. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, I think that's kind of a clever bit of writing that that he doesn't get the letter, even though it's unsatisfying, because once again, they have to explain why this didn't happen or why the treasure lay dormant. Um, If it's not clear to the listener, another reason that this is so confusing in this book is because there is a lot of disagreement about whether this book is about pursuing one treasure or two. Uh, Because there's the treasure from the Roanoke colony, which is this running through line uh, from Changing Tides from the previous books. And then there's the Meriwether Lewis thing. And, And even though, like looking back on it, it seems misguided. At some point, the characters get the get it in their heads that these are one and the same, and then someone wisely goes, "Why do we think that? Walk me through why we think that." And they go, "I guess we don't think that." Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are two plots happening simultaneously that get conflated by the characters, and then solved separately, but only sort of for both. Correct. <laughs> and by solve separately, we mean that the Roanoke treasure that is the through line in the book series theoretically gets wrapped up here in this interesting but kind of disappointing treasure find. Uh, and then the other one that was the clue was meant for Lewis, that gets found in National Treasure 1? Yes. What a mess. <laughs> It's, it's very convoluted, especially when she's tying together two different treasure hunts from two different movies into a single narrative. I never um, would have pieced together that the, the big treasures within these books that everybody's looking for all the time, the treasure of the Asians and the lost city of gold or whatever, 
are the ones from the movies. Like never, ever, ever would I have been like, obviously, of course. And now that you've explained yeah. it, like it makes sense. But right. I, I so didn't those know. Little, yeah, those little pieces of lore were the bits that I kind of enjoyed. Where it's like, oh, like I can enjoy this having watched the movies instead of like trying to engage with it as its own separate like uh, uh, book. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's kind of fun because it lends even more grandiosity to Ben finally finding the treasure that his ancestors have been curious about for like so long. And that we kind of see even here, we're reading about his ancestors, like trying to piece it together, but in their lifetime, never being able to make any headway. And so I, I think it's a fun little way to kind of build up that big revelation in the movies. Maybe this is why this book feels so unsatisfying. It feels very realistic. Like, if I found myself on a misguided journey on the Mississippi and, like, had a mysterious letter and was seeing these medallion markings with arrows, like, I could probably figure out the arrows and follow them to a place, but, like, would I be able to pluck historical clues out of the and like free associate out of thin air my way to like a a treasure so vast that it's it's inconceivable for the average person like it feels much more like yeah this is an annie scale adventure like <laughs> paddle around on the mississippi and find a trunk in the ground nice <laughs> i like that these but that's not what i come to this book franchise for i'm with you <laughs> i do appreciate that these protagonists are i think like the almost the dumbest of our protagonists so far like <laughs> not to be rude to them but like in the first book sam is like very bright he's a guy who reads books and he has like a photo photographic memory which really helps them identity whatever he clarifies <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't know the word whatever the point is, then, like, the like John in the second book is, like, not necessarily himself, like, a puzzle solver, but he, like, knows how to ask the right people and find the right direction to go in a way that feels smart. And these kids are just like, let's just move forward and see what happens. Um, they're not, and it they just, like, never solve, they have to, like, pick up a feral child to solve the clues <laughs> for them. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Franklin Poole really carries the <laughs> Yeah, he really does. I desperately want Franklin I I his name is close enough to other famous sounding names that I'm like, that has to be someone from history and then very directly in the back of the book they're like the made up characters of <laughs> <There's> <laughs> Adam yeah. Ellie and Franklin Poole. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> So they see Franklin bullied by the Brewsters, I think in the prologue, really early in the book. And then later on, where are they going when he's stowed away? Are they going back to Philadelphia to do to approach Lewis about going on the expedition? They're going to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh with the Brewsters. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they, they go back home. Sometime passes after uh, 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 Ellie meets up with um, uh, uh, someone who's part of the expedition. And she's like, I want to join. And he's like, uh, we're already leaving. And so he's like, well, bummer. And then um, they hear about uh, the the expedition in Pittsburgh after some time has passed. And she's like, I really want to go. I really want to go. Let's just leave our family, the two of us now and travel there. And I think it's on the coach ride there that Franklin Poole reveals himself having stowed away. And the driver's like, I don't do stowaways. 
and they have to grease I'm the pumps a little bit. I'm going to throw this kid onto the side of the road <laughs> right. in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I jumped ahead a bit in the narrative, but that's that's where we like meet him again after his mother has died in the past. Yeah, super dark, like casual mentioning of like. I, I latched on to this woman who was kind to me because I now have no one. I've been living on the streets of Philadelphia for months. So the oh boy. after they find him stowed away, as we're kind of alluding to, uh, he doesn't want anything to do with Adam, but he loves Ellie. Ellie is like his protector. Uh, and <clears throat> she talks to him for a while and she says, This boy is now an orphan, Ellie said, her blue eyes sad. We always got to know her eyes are blue every time. His mother succumbed to, cons- to consumption shortly after we first saw them, and he's been on his own ever since, stranded in Philadelphia, an unfamiliar city, as he comes from Washington. Oh, and he was not following the three of you by stowing away. She shot an unfriendly look at the Brewsters. Then she sighed and glanced at the ground. He was... he was following me, she added softly. Adam raised his eyebrows. He was? Why? Because I was kind to him. Ellie bit her lip. He remembered me from before, and when he spotted me again, he followed me all the way onto this coach. Her expression hardened as she looked around at the other men. That makes me responsible for his welfare. Good on him for being like, she was nice to me. I'm going to follow her onto this coach that also has the people who were abusing me. <laughs> He's very brave. Yeah, ballsy kid. Yep. My salvation and damnation <laughs> lies on this coach. Yeah, it really does feel like everything. Like Franklin Poole is written in a way where Catherine Hopka was like, "What would Riley Poole do in this situation?" Franklin will do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> he will display cunning. He will display intelligence. He will live off the land for months. <laughs> And I think we're having a hard time going through the plot of this because basically they just like wander in the wilderness attempting to find Lewis and Clark for like months. No, no, but Hannah, 72% of the book. I agree with you, Hannah, that there is a part of this book where we hit the fast forward button on the plot hard, but we're not quite there yet. They're in Um, Pittsburgh. They meet up with Lewis, who's like, girl, get the fuck out of here. And she's like, that's disappointing. I guess we'll have to go home. No girls allowed. They don't have any money. So they spend like an entire season working to make enough money to go home. (laughs) At which point the Brewsters are like, hey, jerks, solve a puzzle for us. I mean, that's also wild. They have all been in the same small town together for months. The Brewsters know they're there. And one day decide, hey, let's hassle those people again. Right when they're about to leave. They're like on their way to their coach home. And the Brewsters are like, and we're doing a kidnapping. Right. (laughs) Right before that happens, we get the scene where uh, it's on 70. Because they've gone, of course, to... Uh, as we said, get on, uh, join the expedition. And we have the scene, it ends the chapter and then begins the next. Uh, we are here because we wish to volunteer for your expedition, she's speaking to Lewis. My brother is strong of limb, and I have much interest in the scientific discoveries that may be found out in... She trailed off when Lewis held up his hand, seeming alarmed. Oh, my dear, he said with a brief laugh, of course we cannot have a woman on the expedition. It's quite out of the question. I, I did like that. End chapter was like, three. He would say no. <laughs> he would definitely say no. On the on the point of that, 
something that struck me about that moment was because Meriwether Lewis is a historical figure and a, you know, beloved one, uh, they treat his sexism very gently. And <laughs> had this character been an invented one by the author, I get the feeling that his sexism would encompass his personality entirely and make him an awful person. And uh, uh, his sexism is also received very gently by Ellie. Um, she's just kind of like, well, that's a bummer. I'm disappointed. And uh, I can imagine if this were just like another random fictional character, she would be storming about it and fuming about it for like the rest of the book. And it would be eventually a come up with this character landing in like a pile of manure for his period appropriate <laughs> sexism. <laughs> I do appreciate period appropriate sexism. I think these yeah, books too. have proven throughout that they're like committed to period appropriate mindsets. And, you know, hopefully the characters learn from their experiences and grow into not period appropriate mindsets. But largely, like, they start in a place of like, yeah, well, it's crazy, actually, that Ellie thinks she could ever be part of this. That she that that is realistic to her is honestly sort of surprising. And that it doesn't work out is fair reasonable a whole thing that like there's a a thousand reasons why they wouldn't want her on this thing with them Mm. a bunch of men in the wilderness (laughs) one lady come on don't do that to yourself (laughs) hannah great point they definitely won't uh end up relying on an extremely famous woman who is famous for helping them (laughs) great point i think she's married though as we very important very important distinction mm-hmm. of the helpful woman. Mm. Yeah. Unmarried woman with a bunch of dudes like, who may or may not if be married. She makes it through the whole journey and they're like, You're a scientist. We respect you. We like you, Ellie. She comes home and everyone's like, What were you doing out there with all of them? Whoring? <laughs> like there's no way that like her reputation remains intact, even if nothing happens to her on a thing, on a journey. You know? Look, not to I'm be rude. just saying I'm just saying that we could have, you know, Ellie Gates coins. It's it's a problematic <laughs> opinion. Even as I say it, I'm realizing it. I mean, I, it's not good. I don't know if this is true, but I do vaguely feel like in the time period, the view of Sacagawea was that like she was helpful, but she's also like an ignorant native woman who ran around with her tits out. And that was a whole mm. thing. Mm. Well, that- the re- uh, actually, um, they... <laughs> A lot of why she was valuable on the trip was because she could be a translator for the uh, for the native population. And apparently, I think she was uh, well beloved among the expedition. Um, uh, the 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 people on the expedition like like they loved her. They loved her child, and um, I think they did value her. Um, I but I think a lot of from her utility uh, mm-hmm. more than like you know as a human being. Hard to say. I believe that the people on the expedition liked her and respected her. I have to imagine if it was 18-whatever, and you're, like, reading a newspaper in Washington, D.C., and it says, like, reports from Lewis and Clark say that they've hooked up with an Indian woman who's telling them where to go. I'd be like, what's her deal? That sounds insane. And I, <laughs> in a period of a way, would be like, well, I don't respect her. You know, like, the, the larger world <laughs> conception of her. I mean, I feel like Probably because she existed outside of, quote, polite, you know, westernized society. She could she could kind of do whatever because she was never going to be respected either mm-hmm. way. So if she's 
on an expedition with a bunch of guys, whatever, if she's living with her with fur her trapper husband. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, it's kind of all the same in the eyes of, you know, racist mm. American settlers. <laughs> it is funny that Ellie is the one character in these books so far that is like, I would really like to do something <clears throat> socially subversive. I mean, we've had characters in past books who are like, I want to go on an adventure, blah, 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 whatever. Ellie's the one who's like trying to do the most subversive thing. Like, I'm a young woman. I want to be on this expedition. It sort of bucks every expectation of me. And Hapka has to unfortunately write I think, Chase, I'm basically restating what you said, but she has to unfortunately write that fire in her belly and then also, oh, I can't go? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is the world that I uh, have grown up in. (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting book where where she gets the no and then she's like, trying to follow the ex- exposition and, and her brother's like, you're in danger. This is bad. Like, <laughs> you're she not going to find them. She also gets kidnapped like twice, yeah. which is too many times. <laughs> yeah. It is a strange escalation from the movies. I understand people get kidnapped in the movies and things like that, but like, there's so much verbiage in these books uh, and Jasper from the first book being the same way where they just straight up have people trying to do murder on the protagonist. I mean, in the first book, Jasper just walks up to a child in a field and shoots an arrow trying to hit him in the heart. And it, like, goes (laughs) through his shoulder. And it's just like, Uh, this is vicious in a way that I feel like not even the movies are. I think Sean Bean is actively trying to do murder. To adults. He's trying to do murder to adults. Yeah, to his peers. I agree that Jasper should not be trying to kill a child. But when the Brewster children are trying to kill the Gates children, I'm like, that's fine. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And then at the end of Book of Secrets, like, Ben Gates is like, I guess I'm going to die here for sure. Mm. And doesn't, Mm. thank heavens. Mm. Like, there's the risk of death, and I feel like the risk of death is more realistic in the movies, where I am worried for those characters. Mm. In a way, I they wasn't almost get here. starved. They they could have been starved to death in a chamber in a basement in the first movie, or more likely shot when Ian. It's Ian, right? Ian. When Ian comes back. And is like, you gave me a bogus clue. And they're like, yeah, we were really hoping we'd not be here when you figured that out. <laughs> yeah, where were we in this story? I mean, they spend like a hundred pages on the river, walking through the woods. I not know. Not doing anything. Look, Hannah, you've made I mean, chapters, clear that chapters you don't six to 12 is literally get Ellie back. We got her back. They're chasing us. We ran. And then finally, in chapter 12, they have escaped the Brewsters and they are lost. And then it's time to get unlost. And then after getting unlost, thanks to Franklin Poole, some of chapter 13 is them secretly treasure hunting. Adam does not know they're secretly treasure hunting. He finds out they're secretly treasure hunting or heading to St. Louis and he's very hurt and then gets convinced to go, he the treasure hunting guy gets convinced to start the treasure hunt by his sister in Franklin Poole. I think it sucks that Adam Gates is the point of view character for this book. It should be Ellie. She's doing all the big thinking. She's doing all the adventure thoughts and problem solving. 
Like, it's just sexism that she isn't the main character of the book. I agree. Maybe they wanted, like, the most straight man perspective. (laughs) Both sexuality and also, like, that is his character, (laughs) is the straight man. Like, I don't know, guys. This just seems... This seems like too much. We should go home. We should call it off. (laughs) One thing that I like about this book is that it approaches puzzles in a different way than the last ones, which is, as opposed to being like, you know, having a poem that's like, when the moon is in bloom, 56 is your room. And then you have to spend (laughs) chapters being like, what does it mean? Like, this one actually has a code, and I'm sure this is really basic stuff for people who know about codes and use logic or whatever. But for me, a dum-dum, I appreciated that there was a page in this book that taught you how to operate the code, mm-hmm. which is something that hasn't happened in the series yet. So they find on 118, they've discovered that the letter that the Brewsters stole, and just because we kind of sped through that, the way we get out sort of into the wilderness is that uh, of course, Ellie's still kidnapped. They take her onto a boat, and then there's, like, a boat chase, and then they get Ellie back, and everyone's just out in the middle of fucking nowhere, being like, ah, I gotta get away from the Brewsters. And the Brewsters come back a comical amount. They're around every corner. <laughs> um, on 118. Like your rival in the Pokemon games. No matter how far you travel, he will always find you. It's it's like a nightmare. It feels like a nightmare. Every second page. <laughs> yeah. And they do it way too much. They'll be like, there's a boat. It could possibly send its Brewsters. It can't save us. Every it's time. <laughs> Every it's time. Enough, enough that even the characters themselves are like, I don't believe it. It's them. <laughs> it's them again. You know that meme with like one character in a car making a face at someone and then another shot of like that other character in that other car looking at them? It's like that several times <laughs> in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about. Okay, page 118. <laughs> so uh, it says, uh, Adam glanced up, realizing he'd nearly forgotten that Franklin was still present and listening. A substitution cipher, he repeated. My father and grandfather taught me all about such things. See, first one creates a tabula recta. That's a sort of square of alphabet letters, with each horizontal line shifting one spot to the left. So the first line begins with A and ends with Z. The second begins with B and ends with A. The third begins with C and ends with B, and so on. Do you see? He wondered belatedly if Franklin had any practical knowledge of the alphabet whatsoever. But the boy nodded as if he understood. Then what, he demanded. Then one chooses a keyword or line, Adam said, gripping the edge of the shelter as the scow, what's a scow? Scow bounced off a floating log and the boatman let out a curse. Boat part. Part of a boat. It's a boat part. Part of a boat. (laughs) Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, It can be anything. Say you decide that the keyword would be your first name, Franklin, and the line you wish to encode was your surname, Poole. You would start with the first letter of each word, finding the F in Franklin in the top line of letters and the P in Poole in the vertical row going down the left side. Then you would follow each of those lines out to the spot within the tabula recta where they intersect. Whichever letter was found there would become the first letter of the coded line. I was like, cool! I get that in my mind. I also thought, wow, that would take forever to just write out the tabula recta. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yes, you're right. I mean, 26 Graph squared is Graph paper has like not been invented yet. 
Yeah, it's a well, lot. Well, I think once uh. you make one, you just keep that one. Mm. Oh, and you just count. And you're like, I'm a code start person, so I'm just going to hold over. on to my tabula recta <laughs> and use it for every one of these. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. I was a that little frustrated by was that we didn't get to see what the encrypted, like, series of letters was. Uh, so we didn't get the chance to try and crack the actual code itself. It just said, like, um, the the letter was, here is your uh, thing, and I'm going to offer you these keywords. And then it says, like, a bunch of gibberish follows that. And I kind of like being able to see the gibberish to be like, all right, let's see if I can do this. I won't. It's way too much work. <laughs> but to be able to, like, be given the opportunity and then see the characters figure out what you were just given is really fun. And I was like, ah, oh, I kind of wish I had seen that. Mm, agreed. I also, you know, they say gibberish, but like, I don't, is gibberish like scribbles that aren't even letters? Is it letters in weird orders? Is it actual recognizable words, but they don't make any sense together? I also wanted to see the code. Mm -hmm. I think it's a huge part of this series is like, give the reader the tools to solve a thing. And yes, you're right. This would be massively challenging. But give the readers the tools to do it, because if somebody wants to set their mind to it, they should be able to. You had a a quote earlier how Adam was wondering if Franklin had a grasp of the alphabet. And then later Franklin was like, I've memorized the preambles (laughs) to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, you asshole. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the thing about Franklin is... They give him a lot of characterization in here that I really enjoy uh, just during the endless, you know, sequence of them going through the forest or the jungle or whatever. Um, Let's see. We have uh, bonding with Franklin on 156. Um, (laughs) For the first time since entering the cave, Adam forgot his own fears. There's a whole part where they're just in a dark cave just fucking hours um, literal hours they are underground hours and hours long enough that it seems that they emerge from the cave in a completely different environment <laughs> yeah and there's that passage where they emerge from the cave and they're like wait i thought we were on the other side of the river oh Plus the yeah. river looks completely different and i'm like oh there's a twist coming I know how plots are. Yeah. It's gonna be the I wrong also, area or something. I want to see a map because I just don't understand how they could have been underground for so long that they end up at a completely different river. No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and 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 it even if it does make sense, even if it's like it was a different river, they went under the river. It's like why would you write in something seemed a little fishy and then ultimately be like it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> Right. I have to um, imagine that they're on the Ohio River that meets the, this is not an accurate hand diagram, but that meets mm-hmm. the Missouri River or whatever. And they enter the cave, like, keep this in your brain, like here, like right at the crux. Mm-hmm. And they exit mm-hmm. right at the other side of the crux. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So no. he's cut in the corner of where these two rivers meet. Okay. Right? I guess. So they so do they're... go under one. So they're in Kentucky at this point. River, river, cave system. The pencil is a cave system. Okay. Uh-huh. So this I don't is really helpful in an audio under. medium. <laughs> yeah. It's for you guys. Uh, fuck the listener. They can 
look at a map. I don't know if this is accurate either, but that I was mean, my guess. I, I'm looking at a map right now, and it's sort of helping it make sense. A little bit. I mean, what really happens is that Franklin Poole knows exactly where they are on a different river. Mm-hmm. And Adam fucking doesn't and just takes their <laughs> word for it. That even though it looks completely different and he feels like they're on the wrong side of the river, he's like, well, I guess I'm just turned around because I don't know what I'm doing. Well, he's um, also, it's a it's a hilarious him. character development because he's spent most of the book before now being like, I know best. I'm the adult in the room. Like, you guys just have to listen to me. And then he finally is like, you know, it's really Ellie and Franklin who have gotten us out of a lot of these binds. I should I should start listening to them more. And that is when they're like, excellent. We are yes. in St. Louis now. <laughs> yes, since Adam is turned around, this is where they take the opportunity to kind of guide the treasure hunting adventure without him knowing. Uh, so they continue to follow the markers, which happen to match the medallion that Adam has which leads them on, you know, what uh, Ellie and Franklin are hoping is like the the big treasure hunt. I'm sorry to be a killjoy, but like the they have this medallion for decades in the family, <laughs> and then just somebody just sees this symbol in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody had ever made it to Western Pennsylvania before. Okay. So they didn't also, know. Are these medallions only for this treasure? That was another thing that was like. This medallion seems awfully special for, like, a random series of rock and tree markings in the Midwest leading to a buried trunk of, like, some nice stuff, but... Yeah, something about this really bumped me. I'm trying to figure out what it was. Maybe it's that, like, I hike a lot, and, like, sometimes when when there's blazes on trees and you're supposed to follow the blaze... I have trouble finding them even when I like am right next to them because uh-huh. it's just like <laughs> the sight lines just like a little off mm-hmm. or something. I, I understand it's a Disney book series, but like <laughs> they're just like wandering around in life and they're like, I saw the f- it's in the woods. It's over there. Well, it's really, fr- yeah. again, it is Franklin Poole who's like, I saw that symbol in the woods and Adam's like, what? And he's like, you heard me. I saw it in the woods. Did I stutter? And then some, and then because I guess he's really stubborn and spends a lot of the book not liking Adam. It's not until Ellie asks him, I don't even know what chapter. Way later, she's like, "Where did you see it?" And he's like, "On a rock in the woods, just west of Pennsylvania, or just west of Philadelphia." And he's like, "God damn it!" And fair, th- but even there's a lot but of even points then. where like Franklin is, tries to be like, oh, I saw it on it, and Adam is like, shut up, I don't care about what you saw. <laughs> True. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, and he doesn't understand it, but he thinks he does. So he's like, shut up, child. <laughs> that is true. But also, again, Franklin Poole is the one who finds the symbol and is like, I think, I think it might be trying to tell us something. <laughs> yeah, and okay, it's not so- until they then again see like a different one farther down the river that they're like you know there's an awful lot of these markings we've seen around maybe they're heading somewhere Mm -hmm. it's really convenient that they find a treasure at all i mean it doesn't make a lick of sense Mm -hmm. that they like happen upon them yeah and then sometimes they're like oh we're at a fork in the river and we couldn't find a symbol so we just picked one and it worked out (laughs) (laughs) that happens a couple of times yeah yep here is my theory, uh, because it dates back to like the Roanoke colony. And the famous thing about the Roanoke colony is they left behind a marker intended to, you know, guide whoever came after they left, tell them where they went. 
And I think that this medallion is another one of those instances where they left behind saying like, look for this symbol, we'll leave it on rocks to tell you where we're going. And it leads them to not only the, uh, uh, the little like, you know, time capsule type chest with things of, uh, of theirs, little belongings, but also a map which points towards that famous mountain formation, the Six Grandfathers, later known as Mount Rushmore, which hides the city of Gold Cibola. So my theory is that this very Roanoke-like group of people that left and left this trail continued on to the city of Gold, where they mm. lived out their days. That's a really long way to go in like 1588. Yeah, that's it's a long way to go. But like th that's one of the theories that the uh, that the Roanoke colonies um, like assimilated further inland with the different uh, native tribes. And when in that box, they find different uh, native paraphernalia, as well as like uh, colonial coins and other valuables, that kind, it kind of looks like if that's where she's going with this interpretation, that she's kind of leaning towards that theory of what happened to the colonists. Mm. Hmm. But then how, un how unsatisfying then that we stopped at, we found a trunk buried and we're like, cool, hunt's over. <laughs> so far, none of the treasures that the Gates have found in these books have been satisfying or big. Because so. they can't be. This I is know. Like the, the inherent contradiction of the series is like on two fronts first of all they, 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 these people have to be so lustful for treasure <laughs> i gotta find the treasure it's my whole thing and then they uh can't really find anything huge because there has to be doubt about whether treasures are worthwhile venture in the next book <laughs> and also in the films right like you can't have them literally find millions of gold bars and then in the next book have their son be like that was a one-off thing dad <laughs> uh then the other problem is like every book has a character who's got a hard-on for treasure and then at some point because it's a serialized series and 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 things continue into the next whatever like at some point someone gives you a medallion that is the key to a greater treasure and the the character who's crazy about treasure is like you know what I got enough. <laughs> I'm good. I'm gonna sit, I mean, I got to take like a few decades off. Maybe I'll let my son look at the medallion. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what I was hoping for, where I was hoping this book was going, because it did feel like it was heading to Mount Rushmore, in my mind, of like, cool, Louisiana Purchase. We're heading west. Exploration is happening. I was hoping they would get close and that like you know and then like other plot stuff would get in the way but like you the reader got to have the satisfaction of like ah oh, they're right there like i know they're there they don't and that you know i'm frustrated but also i have that like reader satisfaction of you know being omniscient yeah or even like through their actions they inadvertently like reveal a part of the path but they don't necessarily know that or they like note the path as featured in national treasure book of secrets and they don't know what it is but you do and i don't know it would have been more satisfying to me for them to be like dancing around mount rushmore rather than like cool we found a a box with some some jewels and some nice stuff in it and uh we've quenched if our adventure actually <laughs> linked up with lewis and clark they like would have 
past Mount Rushmore, right? I think so. Sorry, I'm like mid comparing notes, uh, maps, and it's like where it's Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah, and like where Mount Rushmore is, which is not like my strongest geographic. I mean, they were eh, not quite, not quite, but not super far off either. Hey, that could have been. They could have been in the general vicinity when the Brewsters re re emerged and chased them really close to it. I mean, and then as they we know, that insane treasure is in, like, a hole in the ground. So you could be <laughs> like, oh, and then the Brewsters fell into the treasure hole and couldn't get out. <laughs> so, like, I think you, you, you're touching, know, you Annie, on something. Uh, Annie, I think you're touching on something really that, that makes this book maybe worse than the others, which is <laughs> uh, in being unmoored from, like, a specific location, the first one is, like, we're in Jamestown. This is a, a foundational moment in American history. The second is one, one is like, we're in Concord, Massachusetts, right before the revolution. This is like at a, something we know to be an inflection point in history. Yes, the Lewis and Clark expedition is an inflection point in history, but it, by its definition, is moving. And so having our characters stumbling around the wilderness <laughs> doesn't feel inherently... American in the way that Jamestown or pre-revolution Boston does. I mean, not if they're not aimless. Not if they're not on a famous exp. Like you know, if they were with a a band of totally. Protestants who are eventually going to settle, and you know, I don't know, or they're with they're with a tribe of Mormons who are eventually going to settle Salt Lake City, and you're like, that is a thing that happened in American history. That's cool that they were there for that. <laughs> They should be there for the expedition. I mean, we all agree on that. They should mm -hmm. be doing the expedition with Lewis and Clark, right? Yeah. yeah. I feel I feel like it's like the series should be like Forrest Gump, but like the Gates family instead of <laughs> one man. Just as the second one has them find a bunch of muskets and stuff and then goes, you know what? But since that would clash with history, someone else is going to steal credit, which is how that book ends. Mm -hmm. So that like the Gates aren't aren't actually in history. They could pull some malarkey with that. I also don't care. I, I don't I I don't care that the gates are not real and so they can't affect <laughs> real history. Like I don't give a shit about that because these movies and stories are straight up fake. And we don't have the same presidents. Like the fact that we have a Bruce Greenwood president means the world of national treasure is different. And therefore, if the Gates wanted to find a shitty-ass treasure that, like, was enough to get written in the history mm -hmm. books, that's chill with me. If you want to be like, oh, yeah, the Gates were on the Clark Expedition, and, like, okay, you look at who was on the Lewis and Clark Expedition, like, well, they're not there. Like, I don't fucking give a shit. It's a slightly different universe. <laughs> it's, like, a slightly different alternate universe timeline wherein the Gates were there, and that would be fine with me. Or at the very end, for some reason, they're like, take our names off the register. No one can know. <laughs> sure, sure. There's a lot of ways you could, stupid excuses you could I think come it's up with. <laughs> I think it's funny when they bend over. I mean, it's the same It's the same itch of like me watching like, you know, Saw 8 and them in <laughs> Saw 8 being like, 
the this person was also a killer, but they were in the background and saw two, and we filmed a scene to show how that makes sense. So get off our case. Like I like when movies do that when they're like, <laughs> we came up with a way that this fits into history. I mean, I like that too, but I'm also not precious about it. You know, mm-hmm. like if they wanted to be like, it works, and also the National Treasure universe is slightly goofy. You'd be like, yeah, great. There is treasure in a way that there isn't in the real world. They should do a National Treasure 3 that takes place in like Blade Runner times. <laughs> and they're uncovering a mystery left by the Bruce Greenwood president. <laughs> or like the history is their fake shit too. Uh, hot. Love <laughs> it. Would be good. Um, okay. I've been trying to get out this Franklin Poole uh, character development for an age. So uh, they're hanging out with Franklin Poole in the wilderness and Adam doesn't really like him. And then he comes around. Um For the next little while, he kept up a steady stream of chatter. First, he got Ellie chuckling with some silly jokes and riddles. This is Adam doing this. And once or twice, he thought he heard a soft snort of laughter from Franklin as well. When he ran out of jokes, he switched over to challenging them with word puzzles and bits of code. While this was a regular pastime for himself and Ellie, Franklin caught on quickly and soon was nearly as clever with his answers as Ellie herself. You have a nimble mind indeed, Frank, Adam said admiringly. He immediately winced in anticipation of the boy's sharp retort, but instead there was a moment of silence before Franklin spoke. Me mum said, I got that from me dad, the boy said at last, his voice soft and uncertain. He was always clever with his mind as well as his hands. What happened to your father, Franklin? Ellie asked gently. There was another moment of silence, and Adam began to think the boy didn't mean to answer. Then Franklin spoke again. He brought us over from Ireland, because he heard there was lots of work here, he said. Sure enough, he got him a job right off. He helped build the presidential mansion in the new capital city. And it goes on to talk about how, uh, what happened to his dad? Did he die? He got, like, hit by a falling piece of construction. Oh, I forgot! Yeah, while building the White House. (laughs) Yeah. Oof. Oof. A very very logical, but very, like, oh, man, (laughs) way to go. In the construction business. Um, well, there's an interesting um, historical uh, error that I caught when he was describing the the White House. Um, I think it's like on page 158 or so. But, historical error. Hannah's going to love this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it yeah, could yeah. be a universal discrepancy. <laughs> um, where is it? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, sure enough, he got the job right off, helping build it. I guess it's right at the very next line. It says, yeah, go. The design and building of the impressive white presidential palace in Washington had been in the news since Adam was a boy. Uh, at this point, the building was not white. Um, mm-hmm. It was only painted white after it was burned down in the War of 1812 to cover up the scorch marks. At this Holy point, the the, 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 pa- the presidential palace, as it was called, because it was not called the White House because it wasn't white, was more pink than white. In fact, it was often referred to as the Pink Palace. Um, so at this point in time, not a white building. Ugh, I love Shame it. on Catherine. I'm mad at her. You should be better than that. <laughs> that's like a well-known historic. That's like an, ob- come on, girl. <laughs> <laughs> the second part of the Franklin characterization is they eventually ask him why he's so good with wilderness. Uh, it says, how did you come to know all this about surviving in the wilderness? Adam asked the boy as he bit into the cooked flesh of a rabbit. <laughs> Was it all learned in those months we were in Pittsburgh? It seems near impossible. You could have picked up so much on your own. Franklin glanced at him, then down at the ground. 
Me dad, he explained. He grew up poor back in Ireland. From the time I can remember, he spoke of making the most of the land, finding food and exploring and such. Suppose it all stuck in me, in me head, even after he passed. Adam didn't know what to say in reply to that, so he merely took another bite of the gamey meat. Uh, yeah, it's just like, the the plot kind of sucks in this book, but I like <laughs> that they introduce a character that's like, different from characters we've seen in the past books. It, it, it tends to be like, there's a villain, and there's somebody the main character wants to marry. That th- Those are things we've seen before. This time, it's just like, you know, there's a there's kind of an apprentice. They take on this little kid, and as opposed to having him be just impressionable, he has all of these traits that he brings. What I thought, if he was a little Riley Poole? thought it was nice. <laughs> Esque figure. <laughs> Slightly more competent, but equally beloved. He's the glue. No, I- he's the glue holding the team together, just like Riley. And they should hold his hand and kiss him on the top of his head. <laughs> I texted Hannah about this while I was reading the book, but Frank Poole is the name of the guy in 2001: A Space Odyssey that gets shot out into space. <laughs> Coincidence? I did not Just know the last that. name. His name is Frank Poole. <laughs> wow. So the like, Space Odyssey and the National Treasure franchises are connected through this family lineage. I'm learning so much. <laughs> yep, definitely. And and we can assume that since uh, Frank Poole is his ancestor, this one, and Frank Poole is also Riley Poole's descendant, he has these really smart, capable guys on both sides. He is the absolute nadir of his lineage i want to backtrack on how mean we're being to riley pool (laughs) (laughs) while he doesn't solve many clues he is good at computers and technology and stuff he's a gadget guy yeah Mm. and he deserves credit for being good at that that's why he's part of the team he's not just a cutie you know he's (laughs) Mm -hmm. not just arm candy he has (laughs) skills and talents that he brings to the table oh yeah Mm. He can hack into British traffic cams upon request. Yeah. yeah. He didn't know he'd have to be ready to do that, but Ben was like, you can do that, right? And he's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he is smart. He is on the astronaut he's just not, track. He's just not American history puzzle smart, which, yeah. you know, I think most of us would say the same. Mm. 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 So true. <laughs> The whole arc of this book is we decoded one thing, it had a clue, we solved the clue, the end. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the only purpose that this particular clue serves is pointing to the beginning of the treasure hunt in the National Treasure film. It does not go any further than this in the context of this particular story. And there's something else interesting about this clue when it says only one of 56 holds the key, referring to Charles Carroll. However, it was my impression from the film that it wasn't that Charles Carroll was the only one who knew this clue. It's that Charles Carroll was the last surviving signer. Like he was the only one left mm-hmm. alive who knew about this and had to pass it on before he died. Not and that- why was he the only one left alive? Because all the other ones were killed for knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so like when it says only one, I'm like, I don't know if that's right. The, the mm-hmm. lore here is a little uh, muddy. I wonder if mm. Catherine was given like a movie reference book and she was <laughs> like, uh, CC of C, what's his deal? Oh, he's the last one. Okay, one, right, sure. And like, did she's like, that. I refuse to actually watch them. Or she's like, I saw it once and I'm busy. I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been commissioned to write 
six books in two years. <laughs> what am yeah, I expected fuck. to do? Constantly be watching National Treasure so I get all the details right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whenever you've got writer's block, just pop one in. Mm-hmm. So the clue, I mean, how does how does the CCFC thing lead us to the actual treasure chest? It doesn't. It doesn't. It does not. Andrew, for the last fucking time, there's two separate things happening. <laughs> it's utterly... How do they find the goddamn treasure chest? Through the medallion markings yes. on the trees and the rocks. They literally are just following the markings. Yeah. The yes. yes. I read this book, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the medallion has the, like, mountain profile in it that they figure out which mountain profile they're talking yeah, about right the 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 markings that match the medallion eventually leads them to a buried box which holds a map which that map then leads them to the other buried box with other stuff inside of it which is the treasure of this story completely unconnected to cc of c um mm. and it is that map which guides them to that box which also has a marking indicating the six grandfathers on it um, which is the connection to the Book of Secrets treasure. But yeah, that's that's the extent of the clues and ciphers and, and maps uh, in this entire treasure hunt. Uh, that's pretty much mm-hmm. it. So when they, when they find this map and they dig it up, they're like, oh, we now think that we could, you know, use these coordinates and these other landmarks on this map to find the treasure. But we're so close to the expedition with with Lewis and everybody. Like, do we go to the expedition or do we find this treasure? And so they have to decide which one do they go to first? And like, do we split the treasure with the Lewis and Clark? And they kind of have this whole conversation that, you know, as a reader, I'm like, just go to the treasure. Let's go to the treasure. I, I do not <laughs> care about this decision. Not called you're making. National Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> So they have that conversation and, uh, you know, eventually as they're trying to figure this out, the Brewsters show up again, just like stumbling upon them. Seventh time. Yeah. (laughs) So then they have to escape them while trying to get closer to the, the, the treasure as well. They follow the, the map to what they think is a place where they can dig. And so they start digging and this is where, uh, uh, not, not her yet. But they see some Native Americans show up, look at them, they wave, they wave back, the Native Americans talk amongst themselves, then they leave, and uh, our gang is like, what's that about? Not sure. Let's keep digging. And then (laughs) they continue digging, they find the box, they open the box, they are disappointed, we are disappointed, and... They take point. what's they take what feels valuable. Enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything else not recognizable to them as value is left as garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sakajuia shows up and speaks to them, waving around in, in a nervous fashion, telling them to leave before the Brewsters show up. So they go and they hide um, uh, amongst another hill. They come to the box and see. Oh no, they beat us to it. They stomp off and are never seen again. And <laughs> that is the extent of their villain arc against our heroes. They could have had at least one more chase scene in there, but instead, <laughs> it's just like, wow, Sacagawea, thank you so much for telling us they were coming so that we could hide, watch them, see the box, and then leave forever. Yeah. <laughs> chase Wheaton Whirly, you are... A loving father who once found a cache of muskets and ammunition that helped the Revolutionary War. 
uh, your children say that they're just headed out of town for a day or so, <laughs> and they just disappear for like a fucking year. They're I think it's more. Gone. Isn't it more? I At one point, I said to myself, I want to actually plot this out, but... I don't think we ever said this outright. They lie to their parents about what they're doing. They're like, well, we'll be back in a few days. And then they say, they say, we're going to go to Philadelphia because we're accompanying a coffin Mm -hmm. with one that like that our horses are delivering. They go to Philadelphia. I think they maybe send a letter being like, okay, we lied. We're going to be gone a little longer. But I think that's it. I think the last thing they send their parents is like, our trip is going to go on longer than we said. We're sorry. Ha ha. But you can't do anything to points. But you can't stop us. (laughs) We could write our parents, but they'd be so mad. So let's just wait. And when we get back, they'll be so glad to see us that they won't be mad that we left. So they just don't write. Yep. There's also points in this book when, like, uh, when Ellie is kidnapped and and Adam thinks maybe I should go to the police with this. But who's to say they'd even do anything? And I, I was thinking, I don't think these books have established that the Gates family is a cab. And, <laughs> and what are what are police in the eighteen hundreds for if not for saving like a young white girl from abductors? Were I'm pretty sure they're exclusively for catching time? runaway slaves. Uh d- I yeah, he mentions them. He does mention them, Hannah. Okay. It's just like um I I mean, as Annie says, I feel like most like law enforcement was actually pursuing runaway slaves at this time period. And that like kind of notoriously isn't like the first like police force like in New York City in like eighteen eighty. Mm. Oh, could be. I don't know. Yeah, that that he sounds does about right. Talk about the you might like though. go to the local militia and say, "Hey, I need <laughs> some help." But I don't. I don't think like a police force is historically accurate to 1808 or whenever this book takes place. Mm. You just could go to wrong. your local pub and say, "I need some strong men to help me chase the brutes who got my sister." And yeah. some guys at the pub are like, "Yeah, I'm down for that. Okay. We love fighting. <laughs> we'll, we'll form a mob and help you." Yeah. <laughs> so Chase, this uh your missing children has really uh caused so much stress that your marriage isn't doing so well. So you spend your nights alone. Uh knowing what you know, would you pick up a copy of uh National Treasure Uncharted a Gates Family Mystery number three? Oh boy, if it if I really had a few hours that I desperately needed to kill to get my mind off of my missing children, uh <laughs> I don't know if reading about more runaway children would uh, would help. So I'd probably be These like scenarios always eat themselves in this exact. <laughs> so we're always like, well, if I was on an alien spaceship, I don't think I would want to read about getting attacked by aliens. <laughs> I think I would probably grab for any other book, maybe something lighter. Mm. Great. What did you think of this as a book? As as a book itself, um, like not connected to the National Treasure uh, franchise, I thought it was just very mediocre. Um, uh, I, I I thought it was like okay. I, I didn't really get a whole lot out of it. I the only times I really enjoyed it were those little bits of details that I could connect to the movies. I could point my finger and go, "Oh, that's the thing from the thing that I like." Otherwise, I was like, <laughs> I, "I'm not really getting much out of this." Uh, as as its own book, um, Hannah, if you were oh. given uh, a secret missive from the president 
which read, Pursuant to my earlier letters, I now offer you this confidential missive that I am trustful you are alone shall be capable of deciphering to your great fortune. <laughs> Thus, with the third book of a treasure hunting spinoff franchise, I offer you these key words. <laughs> Would you reach for the uh, book National Treasure Uncharted A Gates Family Mystery to solve the following encrypted message? Uh, well, it sounds like it's the only book that has the right words in it to solve this <laughs> encrypted message. So in that case, yes, I would. Um, if the if after having decoded the message, it was, would you recommend this book back to me? I would probably say no. <laughs> I think um, I think this one's kind of boring and repetitive and and not very exciting. Uh, so I it's. It's in my current ranking. It's book two, then book one, then book three. Ooh. Annie Ulrich, you are a French-Canadian fur trapper living in the Dakotas, maybe? Uh, and you have a really nice Native American wife, and the two of you are very happy. And one day, your nice little wife brings home, like, three really dirty, ragged white children. <laughs> and she says they have been on a crazy journey and we need to make sure they get home and you're like i'm sorry what happened to them ho ho because you're french uh and she says here read this book national treasure colon uncharted a gates family mystery number three that will solve all of your questions would you find that a satisfying reading experience that did in fact answer all your questions about these really raggedy children uh, it would definitely answer all of my questions. I think I would have to say, did I really need to read that whole book to find out <laughs> you've been chased by these bad guys for several states and ended up on a treasure hunt that brought you to my wife? I don't know that I needed a whole book, but <laughs> incidentally, that is my opinion of this book. Did we need a whole book for that? But, uh... 170 pages, 13 chapters before we get to the treasure hunt. I just can't get over that. <laughs> Every chapter, I was like, when is it going to happen? When will they start treasure hunting? My God. <laughs> uh, Andrew Overby. <laughs> Hello. You are a young street urchin who has now found comfort and a shelter with two nice strangers you met in Philadelphia. Mm. You've gone on adventures and now you just want to like settle into a nice quiet life in Concord, Massachusetts. Would you entertain yourself by candlelight in the evenings reading National Treasure Uncharted A Gates Family Mystery? I have one question about my character. Do I even know the alphabet? <laughs> Not only that, you have memorized many important historical texts. <laughs> Basically, the only thing I liked in this book was the tabula recta explanation. It 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 is a really aimless book, and, and I think, Annie, you touched on something that I hadn't really put into words, which is like, why is this a book? And, and it makes me think, this should just be a page in number four. <laughs> where a character in number four shows up as a grandpa and is like, 
I once tried to figure out the mystery of the medallion, but it took me on a wild goose chase through the Louisiana Purchase Territory or whatever. Like, this feels more of a, like, you know, uh, uh, something that you would hear in passing as part of a more interesting story than something that warrants 270 pages on its own. Uh, That being said, these books are intended for young adults and they read pretty quickly and I didn't not enjoy the experience of reading it. I just would never in ever recommend it to someone. But did you That's learn anything about the Louisiana Purchase or the Lewis and Clark Expedition or this time period in history, which I think is partially the purpose of these books? Mm-hmm. Is to I learned Lewis's first name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what else can be asked? Uh I can cut this. If not, Annie, uh, do you have anything that you want to promote? Uh, I uh, have been making t-shirts. What? For sale? Pe- yeah. If people... Where like, are those available? Uh, Well, currently in a room in my house that you can directly contact me about. Okay, great. Drop the drop your address. We're work- yeah, we're working on an Etsy shop, but if you like upcycled t-shirts that say the gay agenda on them, let me know. <laughs> also, I work on I work in film and TV and uh you'll see some spacesuits that I help make in the TV show for all mankind at some point. Uh, oh. and uh, there's a Jennifer Lopez. I, I think I'm allowed to. Yeah, it's 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 all public and it, like release release is imminent. But there's a Jennifer Lopez movie that Netflix is doing called Atlas that we also made spacesuits for. Ooh. So you can check out those. Chase, what about you? What do you have going on? Uh, well, um, if anyone is in Chicago next Christmas, uh, a play of mine is being produced uh, called Wise Guys, uh, the first Christmas story about uh, the three wise men and the hijinks they get to on the way to Bethlehem. Uh, wow. So that will be going up in uh November of 2023. So, depending on when this comes out, <laughs> if you're in Chicago, coming out pretty fast. Yeah, oh, that so sounds so fun. <laughs> put that in your calendar for next year, <laughs> <laughs> guys. I'd like to say a couple of things about National Treasure: colon, Edge of History, the TV show. Uh-huh. Yeah. One, apparently, it premieres tomorrow. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Her recording time. We're so, so we topical. Watch it right now. Um, I didn't know that Harvey Keitel was reprising his role, <laughs> which is cool. And it appears that one of the main teens is Harvey Keitel's like relative. So that's a fun wow. little National Treasure vibe that feels in line with these books. And apparently... They filmed a bunch of it in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I am, and I didn't even know it. What? Very Can't cool. Can't wait to be like, I know that landscape. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Can't wait to touch base about that TV show later. To our listeners, uh, please do remember to rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it. We have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash authorized pod. Of course, we will be, at, be back next week with National Treasure, Westward Bound? Uh, Gates Family Mystery number four, uh, which should be a lot of fun. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do 
Let me know if you recognize what this is from by tweeting at AuthorizedPod. And we never say this, but Hannah and I are on Letterboxd, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, us. that's true. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin Gates looked at the most recent clue he had gotten, completely stumped. I don't understand. It's just a church tower seen through the archway of a door. Riley thought, Is the door open? Yes, it's a bit ajar. Ajar. Church. Bells? The Bell Jar. Is that a book? No, Riley said. We exist in an alternate reality that isn't real America. The Bell Jar is actually a president in our timeline. <laughs> well, then that's our next clue. So, Hannah and I are on our third Gates Family Mystery, even though our guests just joined this week. I think it's pretty obvious there's a bit of a structure to these, uh, a bit of a, you know, we have some ancestor of uh, Benjamin Franklin Gates, and he's existing in some, in proximity to some historical event, and then somehow that historical event is also linked to, you guessed it, treasure. And so here's the idea for this game. I am going to go to one of my favorite websites, wheelofnames.com. Oh my gosh. <laughs> into which I have dumped, and I think it's important, these are from the somewhat recent past, because in each of these books, uh, the characters are, you know... Being like, oh, I heard that 80 years ago. I heard that 100 years ago. Whatever. So these are all from about the last 120 years. Uh, I'm going to spin the wheel, and whoever's turn it is will essentially come up with like a two-sentence pitch for what that Gates family mystery book would be. And so I'll go first to, to sort of demonstrate this. Here we go. So many names. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean... It, Chase, uh, what does this wheel look like? I mean, it looks like uh, uh, if you had that uh, spinning circle of doom on a, on a MacBook, but it was just like divided into thousand slices. It is truly a, a pie chart that is, um, it has a, like a million different uh, little slits in it. Okay, so obviously this doesn't make any sense. We got the result examining a disputed. <laughs> now, each of us is able to veto one thing, but... I have the underlying data for this, so we can actually figure out what this means. Okay, examining a disputed... I like that it came <laughs> up with Edward Snowden. Is the resting, the resting spot it was at. Yeah, no, when I tested it out, I got, uh, you know, uh, Edward Snowden sitting down with the most respected journalist ever, Glenn Greenwald. Um, <laughs> all right. Oh, what a fun one. According to the, the census, the nation's population numbers more than 280 million on April 1st. Not so interesting. 
Uh, then it says, more than a month later after the presidential election, the U.S. Supreme Court rules against a manual recount of ballots in certain Florida counties. Okay, great. <clears throat> so for mine, I'm going to say that, uh, let's see, uh, Edward Snowden Gates, uh, a... <laughs> I guess because it's 2000, a cousin of the Benjamin Franklin Gates character. Couldn't it be Gates? Couldn't it be Benjamin Franklin Gates himself? But here's the thing, Annie. It's not. (laughs) So Edward Snowden Gates, uh, he is uh, incensed about the decision regarding uh, the 2000 election and ends up uncovering that the reason that the Supreme Court ruled the way they did was because the hanging chads on those ballots contained clues to the Supreme Court's own hidden treasure. And so they did not want anyone to re-examine them. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Chase. Uh, Chase, why don't we uh, go on to you? And my pleasure. here is a spin of the wheel. Sometimes it comes out really nice. Sometimes you get a whole sentence that's like, I remember that event. <laughs> hey, the entire year of 1978. 1978. <laughs> the whole thing. The whole thing just says 1978. Uh, Chase, would you rather I search that in the doc or do you just want to take this thing for another spin? Uh, let's go for another spin. One more. Let's go for another spin. <laughs> What does this say? Uh, And that it won't affect military readiness. Let's figure out what this is from. In 2010, an explosion and fire on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico sends millions of gallons of oil into the sea. The spill kills 11 and is the largest offshore spill in U.S. history. I have a question, Andrew, about the rules of this game. Uh Uh-huh. So the actual and it won't affect military readiness is not part of the thing you just read. Do we get to choose whatever part of the year 2010 mm-hmm. we find would be most interesting or just what you arbitrarily choose based on? I'm willing to hear the pitch uh, of however you want to spin it, but I think it's very charitable of me to take like a giant block of text and pick the one that involves an, a, a military or I'm sorry, an oil rig explosion. Okay, but what about the sentence that literally says Defense Secretary Robert Gates? It's also about it's also about don't ask, don't tell, which I don't know. That feels like some some good (laughs) Illuminati lead in. I just don't want Chase to feel limited with what kind of story he could do set in the year 2010. I think I can work with this. I think I've got something going on here. So my- I give you your pick of the litter. Do whatever you want with 2010. All right. Am I am I taking the name uh, Elena Kagan Gates? Is that the idea? <laughs> Elena Kagan, a photo of her right next to this for reasons that are probably clarified in the block of text. Um, uh, Elena Kagan Gates, niece of modern day Benjamin Franklin Gates, Uh, is investigating the Deepwater Horizon explosion and learns it was a cover-up for the discovery of a sunken Spanish galleon that uh, British Petroleum did not want people to discover. And so it was all a big cover-up. So it's sea gold? Sea gold. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. They only wanted people to look at the very surface of the water with all of the oil and fire and not what was like fathoms below. Mm -hmm. I can see the tagline for the the back of the book. It's what burns above hides Mm -hmm. below or something. That's cool. 
Ooh, I love that. Yeah, it, grammatically, it needs a little rejiggering, but... <laughs> Where there's fire, there's water. <laughs> Annie Ulrich, since you're in a, a pitching mood with that incredible tagline, let's have you spin the wheel. Uh, 1983, the U.S. invades the Caribbean island of Granada, Grenada, Grenada, after a coup by Marxist faction in the government. Annie, would you like to take or veto this? You have one veto. No, no, this, this feels, this one feels pretty solid. Pretty right. All right, 1983. So, um, Benjamin Gates's, uh, estranged uncle. Hence why we never hear his father <laughs> talk about any siblings. Um, is working for the U.S. government when it invades the Caribbean island of Grenada and through... Oh, this is... Wait, no, it's a two-line tagline. I'm getting more... I'm getting too detailed, aren't I? No, you're good. You basically just have okay. to wrap it up now. How's treasure involved? Okay, great. Um, ben Gates is... A strange uncle who works for the U.S. government is wrapped up in a U.S. cover-up that prompts the government to invade Grenada after a coup, which would reveal one of the U.S.'s secret treasure bases mm. that it set up during World War II. Wow, we have secret treasure bases in other people's countries. That's so fucked yeah. up. <laughs> I love it. I mean, not... Entirely inaccurate. 